Please open your Bibles with me this morning, if you would, not to Mark chapter 1, but to Matthew chapter 11. Thank you to those of you, 41 of you, who filled out the Trinity survey last week. Uh, You likely saved me from failing out of my Doctor of Ministry program, so I appreciate that greatly. In light of that survey and in light of that program that I am participating in and in light of the glorious privilege that it is to know God this week and then for the next two weeks, we're going to take a break from the gospel according to Mark and go through a study called Knowing the Triune God. Throughout this study, we will seek to do that very thing, to know God. And to know God is to know the triunity of God, most fundamentally who God is, is Trinity. Before there was anything to create, before there was anything to rule over or to save, God was triune. From all eternity, Father, Son, and Spirit have been eternally existing in perfect, blessed fellowship with one another in unhindered and unending love. And so we turn to that subject then for the next couple of weeks. And as we think about that, I I thought it would be helpful to frame up our study of that in these three weeks by asking and answering, hopefully, three questions. Question one will be this week, two next week, and three the following week. Question one is, what does it mean to know God? Question two, how can we know God? And we'll explore that a little bit this morning, but more especially next week. And then question three, how must we respond to the knowledge of God? So I think it's helpful as we think about theology and as we think about the study of the Bible, what we're trying to do is take the, the overall teaching of the scriptures and summarize them in various ways. For instance, by using a word not found in the Bible like Trinity or rapture. Good catch, Chris, by the way. So as we think about the whole of what the Bible teaches about God's nature, we understand that God is most essentially triune in his nature. And so as we think about that, I think it's helpful then to ask various questions so that we can answer them and frame those questions and frame the biblical teaching underneath those questions. And hopefully it will just make sense a little bit more clearly. So question number one this morning, what does it mean to know God. We will be spending the, mo- the bulk of our time in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 to 27, and then we'll finish our time in 1 John chapters 1 and 2. Normally, we would go sort of verse by verse through one particular text. We'll do that through uh, Matthew 11 at least. But in order to have a theological, a biblical theology understanding of the triunity of God and what it is to know God, uh, it's necessary that we do a little bit of bouncing around this morning. So first of all, if you would please follow along with me as I read Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 to 27. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. 
And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God, we come to you now. We realize that we are treading on holy ground, and yet we are invited to do so by your Spirit. We come to the pinnacle of our worship now, the study of you in your word, and we confess we need your help. We also confess and believe that you will help us. So God, we pray that you would prepare our hearts to understand who you are as your word so clearly proclaims it to us. And we pray too that that understanding would sink down deep into our hearts, into our very souls, into our bones, so that our love for you might grow as we recognize your love for us. We believe what you say, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so together we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The Christian life is like a building that God himself is constructing. And of course, every building has as its foundation something solid to rest upon. The more we understand about God, the more we come to know God, the more stable, steady, and secure is the foundation upon which God builds our Christian lives. It could be said the opposite way as well. The less we understand God and the less we know about God, the more shaky that foundation is. As we understand God more and more, as we come to understand who he is, as he reveals himself in his word, it's as if the concrete foundation of our Christian lives hardens. And it enables us then to live a life that is reflective of the very position that God himself has put us in, in Jesus Christ. A stable position a strong position, a steady and steadfast position. So we find then that in the study of God himself is the greatest practical benefit to the Christian's life. Look in any Christian bookstore, look on my bookshelves, and you will find an endless amount of Christian books that are on practical issues regarding the Christian life. And certainly there is nothing wrong at all with that. Yet, jumping straight to the practical implications of the Christian life, the practical realities, the sort of how-tos of the Christian life without firming up the concrete of our knowledge of God will only leave us unstable and unsound. It is a reality that the study of God is the greatest, most practical thing a Christian, indeed a person, can ever, ever do. J.I. Packer in his 
explanation of why he wrote his wonderful book called Knowing God said, the conviction behind the book is that ignorance of God, ignorance both of his ways and of the practice of communion with him, lies at the root of much of the church's weakness today. Packer went to be with the Lord a couple of years ago, but if you asked him what is the greatest problem with the church, what is the source of the church's greatest weakness, he would have told you the source of the church's greatest weakness is an ignorance of God. A.W. Tozer, in his preface to his wonderful book, The Knowledge of the Holy, said, the low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. I say it again. The study of God himself carries the most practical benefit for the Christian. Spurgeon said this when he was just 20 years old in his sermon called The Immutability of God, the most excellent study for expounding the, expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, Continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. And God, in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 to 24 says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Jesus said that the knowledge of the Lord is itself eternal life. John 17, 3, he says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Ask Jesus what it means to have eternal life, and he tells you, To have eternal life is to know God. So if the knowledge of God is this important, then it's necessary, isn't it, that we understand what it means to know God. What does it mean to know God? This is the question that we will explore this morning. We'll begin there in Matthew chapter 11. We'll end there in 1 John 1 and 2 as we think about this overarching question, what does it mean to know God? And as we answer this question, I want us to see this morning three crucial factors that help us to understand what it means to know God. Three crucial factors that help us to understand what it means to know God. Because I think we could probably all give an answer to that question, what does it mean to know God? It's almost like a duh question, isn't it? Well, duh, I can tell you what it means to know God. But let's just set our notions aside for a moment, even if they are correct. And let's go to the scriptures 
And let's see just how great this definition, just how great this privilege is. It's okay, just keep listening. It's all good. You don't need lights, it's the sun's out. Three crucial factors that help us understand what it means to know God. We see the first two here in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 to 27. We, of course, are dropping into a context, so let me help you understand what that context is here. Jesus has just been speaking of the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida and of Capernaum as well. It's okay. Don't worry about that. Just listen. It's okay. The context is Jesus has been speaking about these three cities. They're the cities where he has done his mightiest works. And yet all three of those cities have thoroughly rejected him. And so here he offers up a prayer of praise to God for his sovereign will in both concealing and revealing the truth about who God is. So that's our context. And we see then in this, these first two verses, verses 25 and 26, the first of these crucial factors that help us understand what it is to know God. You'll have to listen extra careful because you can't see it up there anymore. Listen extra careful. Good. Crucial factor number one, the natural impossibility of knowing God. The natural impossibility of knowing God. Verses 25 and 26. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, or rather I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, That you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will, or for with you, for this with you were so well pleased. So we understand first that the that it is uh, it is naturally impossible for anyone to know. God. Jesus is praying to his Father. He's praising his Father. And he explains to us something that we already know, something that Jesus has already established. But he explains to us and reminds us once again that this God, this Father, is Lord of heaven and earth. Which is to say, he's in charge. He's the sovereign one. He is the God of gods, as Psalm 136 told us, and Lord of lords. The buck stops with God, Jesus says. So Jesus is emphasizing and acknowledging and even praising the divine sovereignty of the Father. What is he praising the Father for? Two things, really. And the first one is seemingly shocking, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. The first thing Jesus praises the Father for, the sovereign for, is that he has hidden things from the wise and the understanding. What are the things that Jesus is referring to? Well, in the context, he's just been talking about those three cities and their failure to acknowledge the reality that the works that Jesus did testify to who Jesus is in being the king who will sit on the throne of David for all eternity. 
The king who has come to save his people. The very presence of the kingdom of God has come because the king has come. This is what we've been seeing throughout the gospel according to Mark. And yet, not everyone recognizes that reality. But Jesus doesn't respond by weeping about it. Jesus certainly does weep over Jerusalem later. It takes nothing away from the the sadness of their rejection, but what Jesus does is actually praise the Father that he's hidden these things from a particular class, a particular group of people, the wise and the understanding. If someone is wise and understanding, do they think that you have much to teach them? Now, on the other hand, who has God revealed it to? The second thing Jesus praises the Father for, he's revealed it to little children, or you could even say infants. So if the wise and the understanding think that they don't need any more instruction because they've got it all figured out, then the opposite of the wise and understanding would be little children who basically have nothing figured out. They know how to eat and they know how to sleep and they know how to do that other thing we often say. But what else do they know how to do? Breathe, I guess. Children know that they need instruction. And in fact, children often love instruction. That's why they ask so many questions. So in, distinct, in, in making the distinction between these two classes of people, it's not just that the kingdom of God belongs to little children, though it does, but it's not just that. In making this distinction, Jesus is saying that the Father conceals the truth about the kingdom of God from those who don't think they need to know anything anymore, and he reveals it to those who know that they don't know the things of God. About this, D.A. Carson says, the contrast is between those who are self-sufficient and deem themselves wise and those who are dependent and love to be taught. Jesus came to a group of people who thought that they knew God. Abraham is our father, they told Jesus, and Jesus said to them, no, he's not. The devil is your father. And then they tried to kill him for it. But was he wrong? No. And so the thing that Jesus praises the Father for is the divine sovereign work of his concealing and the divine sovereign work of his revealing. Who does he conceal things from? The know-it-alls. Who does he reveal the truth to? The humble. Isn't this what the scripture says? God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It's not wrong to be wise. It's not wrong to understand. But if there is not met with that desire to be wise and that desire to understand, if there is not a matching hunger and humility to learn and to know greater truth, then that is where it is to be wrong. What does Paul say? Knowledge does what? Puffs up, but love builds up. This is just a side note, but it's a, it's a good current application. Be very careful in your Christian life that you never hit a point where you think you've got it all figured out. 
Be very careful that you never hit a point when you don't think that someone else can teach you something, even if you've been learning for 200 years. That's a safe number because no one is 200 here. Humility is a true mark of a genuine child of God. And Jesus here, by picture, expresses that humility by referring to a little child or an infant. And so he, he praises the Father for this very work. And in fact, in verse 26, Jesus declares that the Father is pleased to do this very thing, both to conceal from the know-it-alls and to reveal to those who are hungry for knowledge. Verse 26 says, Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Or more accurately, it says, Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. It pleases the Father to conceal from the proud and to reveal to the humble. The word for there, as you think about the way in which you study your Bible, the word for there is your explanation for why the Father does what he does in concealing and revealing. For it pleases him. So, if it's the good pleasure of the Father to conceal and to reveal, and only in the Father does that good pleasure lie, that leaves man naturally unable to know God. Some other biblical passages on this very same subject, Galatians 4.8 says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those, pa- to those that by nature are not God's. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul writes to Christians that each of you, each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles, which is a synonym for non-Christians, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 to 8 speaks of the return of Jesus Christ in all his full glory as the Son of Man when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So we get there a further understanding of what it means to not know God. To not know God is to not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. One more, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. So we see the impossible nature of the knowledge of God. Mankind by himself, left to himself, can not know God. There is a dangerous position, however, when we think about that reality. There is the dangerous position of presuming to know God and yet being self-deceived in that presumption. 
1 John chapter 2, verse 4 says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So there, John acknowledges, someone can say, I know him, but if obedience to Jesus does not match their profession of faith, I know him, then the reality is, John says, that person's a liar. And even more frightening, Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me you workers of lawlessness. Now surely those people who prophesy in the name of the Lord and cast out demons and do many mighty works in the name of the Lord, surely they would say, we know the Lord, look at what we can do. But when it comes time to stand before the Lord, the Lord says to them, you might think you know me, but I don't know you. Now is Jesus not omniscient? Does he not know all things? Of course he does. He knows that they exist. He knows everything about them, even greater than they do. But when he says he does not know them, that means that they have never been, uh, that they have never had the good pleasure of the Father to be revealed to know who Jesus Christ and the triune God is. They just think that they do. And so then the first crucial factor to help us understand what it means to know God is that we cannot naturally know God. The impossible nature, the natural impossibility of knowing God. And then the second crucial factor is the gracious gift of the knowledge of God. The gracious gift of the knowledge of God. And this has really already been hinted at in the Father's revealing But look with me at verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses or wills to reveal him. So we see then that we cannot naturally know God, and therefore the knowledge of God must be bestowed upon us as a gift of God's grace. Jesus has already talked about the divine sovereignty of the Father, but here in verse 27, he also talks about his very own divine sovereignty. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. The Father is the Lord of heaven and earth, and yet the Son is at the very same time Lord of heaven and earth because the Father has taken all things and handed it to the Son. We see here then, without seeing the Spirit, though Luke's account mentions that Jesus prays this prayer in the Spirit, without the Spirit expressly mentioned, we see here two members of the Trinity. God the Father and God the Son. But I would ask you, how do we even get the Scriptures in the first place? By God the Spirit. So all three members are working here in this great revelation of the gift of the knowledge of God. Jesus says, the Father has handed over to me all things, 
And then he says that there is an exclusive knowledge of God within the Godhead. No one knows the Father except the Son. And no one knows the Son except the Father. There is an exclusive knowledge between the Father and the Son in the unity of the Spirit that belongs only to the triune Godhead. And yet, what else does Jesus say? No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses or wills to reveal him. This, then, is the gracious gift of the Son. To know the Father, to know the Son, and of course then to know the Spirit is the gift of the Son. People can certainly know about the existence of God. This is Romans chapter 1. But they can't know God in the way that Jesus is talking about here unless Jesus reveals it to them. Jesus is the great revealer of the triune God himself. First John, or John chapter 1, verses 11 to 13, Bob read earlier, Jesus, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He, Jesus, gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood of, not of the blood of man, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So to know God is to be born of God, which is a gift that Jesus has bestowed upon his people. John 14, 6, you know it. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 1 John 5, 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. In 1 John 2, 3, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And so we see the natural impossibility of knowing God. We see the gracious gift of the knowledge of God. And then as our third crucial factor in understanding, gaining a a bigger, better definition of what it is to know God, we see the glorious position of knowing God. And for this, I ask you to turn to 1 John chapter 2 with me. The glorious position of knowing God. To know God is more than just gaining certain insight. It is being placed into an entirely new realm of existence. 1 John chapter 2, we're going to actually work a little bit backwards. Start in chapter 2 and then we'll circle back to chapter 1. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 6, teach us something about this glorious position of knowing God. 
We've read verses 3 and 4 already, but let me read them again so that we get the context. And let me explain a little bit more verse 3, which says, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Now you'll notice that the, not all of our Bibles do this, unfortunately, but they should. The first no there in verse 3 is just a regular old no. We know this. That's a present tense. It's something that we presently exist in the condition of. We know this. What is it that we know? Now, this is a perfect tense, and your Bible should translate this as, we know that we have come to know. Two types of knowing there, right? We know presently that we have come to know, perfect tense, which is a past action with ongoing results. Like when Jesus says, it is finished, perfect tense. It was finished there on the cross, and it remains finished for all eternity. We know presently that we have come to know past tense all throughout eternity. We know that we are in the position of knowing God if we keep his commandments, John's saying. Obedience is a non-negotiable for God, apparently, but that's not the point here. The point I'm making is that we have been placed into the glorious position of knowing God. Verse 4 says, Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But then verses 5 and 6 give us an even better, uh, not better, a broader understanding of what it is to know God. John likes to use synonyms. And so John's going to give us a synonym for what it is to know God. He's already said, by this we know that we have come to know. And now verses 5 and 6, he gives us a synonym. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So what is John's synonym for what it means to know God? To be in him. And in the context, the him is Jesus Christ. To know God, John says, is to be in Jesus Christ, which makes sense. Because only the Father knows the Son, only the Son knows the Father. But the Son chooses or wills to reveal that very truth to all those whom he chooses. So we're getting a little bit deeper then into our understanding of what it is to know God. What is it to know God? Well, simultaneously, knowing God is to be in Jesus Christ. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be in him? You think, for instance, about what Jesus says in John chapter 10 when he teaches that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. In that very same context, Jesus is painting a picture of a pasture with a fence around it, isn't he? A pasture that belongs to him, the good shepherd. But he also says, not only is he the good shepherd, he is the door. In order to guard the flock, the shepherd would lay down in the middle of the gate so that any intruder would have to go over the shepherd first so that he could defend the flock. 
The shepherd in that sense was the door. Jesus is saying, I am the door. How do you get into the pasture of God? Through Jesus. But what's waiting for you on the other side of that pasture? What is it to be in the pasture of God? What is it to know God and to be in Christ? Look back to the very beginning of 1 John. First John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, continue to help us flesh out what it is to know God and to be in Christ. So in verses 1 and 2, John is speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, that which was from the beginning, which he said in John 1 was who? The Word, and he said the Word became flesh. The Word is Jesus. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John's saying we saw him, we heard him, we touched him, and we testify now to you of who he is. The life, verse 2, was made manifest. To be made manifest means to be revealed. The life was made manifest. We talk about human life. We understand that begins at conception. We understand that human life is something that is created, right? But this life, the divine life of God, is uncreated. And so John says that life itself was revealed, was manifested in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ but it gets even better. Verse three, and this is where he continues to explain to us what it means to be, to to know God and to be in Christ. Verse three, he says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So that, why did we, the apostles, why did they proclaim Jesus Christ to people? So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, in order for this to really make sense, we need a better working definition than most of us often have of what it means to be in fellowship. To The word fellowship, koinonia, means to to participate in something together, to share in something together, to have common interests and a common commitment. It means to belong to each other. Listen to what one commentator says about this. The English word fellowship might connote little more than coffee and donuts after church or the large room in the church building where potluck dinners are held. But the Greek word translated fellowship, koinonia, means having not only a close relationship, but also an association based on common interests and purposes. John invites his readers to enter into a relationship with God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. What we do after service is not fellowship. 
It is an aspect of fellowship. It is a reflection of fellowship. But do you know why you like it so much? Because of fellowship. And good food. Let's be honest. You like it so much because in Christ, in Christ, you have fellowship with the triune God and with all those who are also in him. That's why you like it so much. What does it mean to know God? It means to be in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? To have fellowship with the triune God. So as Jesus lets us into the pasture of God, what's going on in that pasture? The eternal fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. From all eternity... The one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have eternally existed in fellowship with one another. And in Christ, you have been brought into that very eternal relation. So we're asking ourselves, what does it mean to know God? And we've come to realize then, good, it's working. We've come to realize then that to know God is not merely factual knowledge about God but is inherently relational knowledge of God. To know God is to know him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and to be brought into this fellowship. When you read your Bible, why do you read your Bible? Please don't let it be merely factual because you miss it. You miss it. Here's a hint. There will be no pop quiz when you get to heaven. God will not ask you to recite in proper order all the books of the Bible. But if you're in Christ, Jesus will meet you to welcome you into the very presence of the triune God himself. And lest you wonder here in 1 John where the Holy Spirit is, 1 John chapter 3, verse 24, says, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God or in him, and he in him or God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us. How do we know that God abides in us? By the Spirit whom he has given us. How do we know anything about God? By the Spirit whom Jesus has left us with. The advocate, the helper, the revealer of the gospel of God. 
How do we know anything about God? How did we get the scriptures? The ministry of the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean to know God? It is not. It is not knowing about God. It is knowing God inherently, relationally, within being, by being brought into the very fellowship that has eternally existed between Father, Son, and Spirit. And that, by its very nature, must be relational. Why do we crave relationship? Because your creator is relational. Lest we think that this is some boring, dry theological topic, we need also to ask ourselves, what has been happening from all eternity within the Godhead? Before anything was made, before God ever put his love onto his creation, what was God doing within God? Jesus tells us in John seventeen twenty four, Father, I desire that they also... The they there is speaking to all disciples after the apostles. If you're a Christian, you are the they that Jesus is speaking of. The son says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. All three persons of the Trinity have been loving one another perfectly, flawlessly, joyfully, ceaselessly from all eternity. And now you, dear Christian, have been brought into that fellowship. You see now how the knowledge of God cannot merely be factual? but is in fact inherently relational. You and I, Christian, have been brought into this reality. And yet if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you hear the words of Jesus. He is the one who reveals. He is the one who brings you into this very fellowship. If you would but turn from your sin and place your trust in him, believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you too would share this very same existence. Could there be any greater existence than to exist within the eternal love of the triune Godhead? And could there be any greater pursuit than knowing God. Let's pray. Oh God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we praise you. We praise you, first of all, simply for who you are. We praise you that you are far greater than our minds could ever even comprehend. We praise you that you are God and we are not. And yet we praise you for revealing these truths to us. 
And we praise you not only for revealing these truths to us, but we thank you and we praise you for bringing us into the very fellowship that you have enjoyed from all eternity. As we come to know that the the most fundamental thing about you is that you are triune, we realize that is something far more glorious than we could ever comprehend. We read about it in books, but we pray that you would never allow it to be some type of cold, dead fact in our minds, but that the knowledge of that would always be bursting with the life and the love that you yourself are. Plant that into our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We come to our time in our service now where we take up our offerings as a thanks to our Lord. I'll ask the men to come forward to receive this morning's offering. It also serves as a time for us to meditate upon the truths of God's word, which we have just unfolded together. And surely there could be nothing better than to think upon God himself. I'll pray for this offering, and then, men, you can pass out the plates. Thank you. Father, we come to you again and we thank you and we praise you for all that you give to us. You are the giver of all things. We thank you for your gifts to us and we pray, O God, that you would enable us and allow us also to be cheerful givers as we reflect on the very fact that you are the greatest giver. We understand, Lord, that it is not your concern and it is not our primary concern to be to think most especially about how much we give, but the way in which we give. So we pray, God, we pray that our giving would reflect your giving. And we pray that we would be cheerful and joyful givers as we see you, Father, giving your Son and revealing the reality of that to us by the Holy Spirit. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.